Welcome to today's Hubbard and O'Brien Economics Podcast. We're recording this one on Friday, February 19th, 2021. I'm Tony O'Brien, a professor of economics at Lehigh University. Joining me as always is Glenn Hubbard, professor of finance and economics at Columbia University. Today, we're gonna to have an early take on the economic policy of the Biden administration. Glenn, how are you today? Great, how are you, Tony? Very well, very well. Been doing a lot of uh, snow shoveling, <laughs> uh, which is probably good for me, I think. So maybe we can start today, Glenn, with the $1.9 trillion stimulus slash COVID-19 relief package that Congress is currently considering. I'll mention that recently you and Alan Blinder, um, professor of economics at Princeton, former vice chair of the Fed's Board of Governors, published an op-ed on the subject in the Washington Post. We have a link to that op-ed on the blog if listeners would like to check it out. Uh, for those uh, listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the op-ed, do you have a general take on the overall size of the package and on the composition of the proposed spending? Is the total amount too large, too small? Is too much being spent on some things, not enough on others? What do you think? Well, great questions, Tony. I, I, I do think the plan is a bit like the game show Jeopardy, where you get the answer and you have to guess the question. It's not altogether clear what it's trying to solve. What Alan Blinder and I pointed out that before you get to deciding whether 1.9 trillion is too big or too small, you have to ask, what's the problem? So the problem isn't classic stimulus the way we would do in a textbook. It's really uh, how to maintain lost incomes during the period of the pandemic. So if you were to go through categories, that would be making sure that unemployment insurance is robust as long as the labor market is weak. It would make sure that we provide aid to states for public health purposes uh, and essential services. Uh, it means that we want to keep our mind uh, focused on the problems of small businesses. All of these are things in the mix. The plan does include uh, spending in those categories, and that does follow the work that was done both in the original CARES Act and the bill that was passed in the Congress late in 2020. But it also provides a lot of money to people who weren't particularly affected by the pandemic. There, would be direct checks going to people who neither lost their jobs nor had an income decline. And that seems poorly targeted. Uh, so I, I think that the question is, do we need a big bill? Yes. Is it this bill? Probably not. Uh, it would need to be more focused. The cost of not being focused would be concerns over too much debt being accumulated and or crowding out other priorities down the road, infrastructure or something else that President Biden may want to pursue. Yeah, I thought that it might be interesting for students and instructors if we talked a little bit about a couple of um, critiques of the bill that were a bit surprising, I guess, because they came from prominent economists who typically are known to be fairly aggressive in their belief uh, that fiscal policy is a good tool to use when you're in a severe recession. And so they would be Larry Summers, um, of course, longtime professor of economics at Harvard, served as treasury secretary in the Clinton administration, 
uh, was director of the National Economic Council in the Obama administration, and Olivier Blanchard, longtime professor of economics at MIT, now at the Peterson Institute for International Economics and served for a number of years as chief economist of the International Monetary Fund. And they were criticizing the size of the of the package, the $1.9 trillion. And I thought it was interesting from a principles of economics perspective because they both framed the criticism in terms of the output gap. And um, as we talk about in the textbook, the output gaps, the difference between real GDP, where we are now, and potential GDP, where we'd like to be, right? Potential GDP, of course, is the level of output we get if we were at full employment and firms are running at their normal capacities. So they both talk about that in their critiques and Summer's calculations, if I understand them right, he thinks that the $1.9 trillion is about three times what we need. And Blanchard actually thinks it's about four times. So just a couple of brief quotes from, from what they wrote on this. Summers uh, makes the claim that uh, the bill has the potential to, and here I'm quoting him, set off inflationary pressures of a kind we have not seen in a generation with consequences for the value of the dollar and financial stability. And Blanchard said this, meaning the, the level of spending in the bill, would not be overheating, it would be starting a fire. So what do you think about that critique? Well, I think those are great critiques to talk about uh, in class, and I think they ring true in part, but I'm not sure I buy them in other parts. So they ring true if what you mean is, is $1.9 trillion larger than the current estimates of the output gap. It most certainly is. They're 100% right on that. You can look at the CBO estimates. Council of Economic Advisors estimates, the estimates that um, Summers and Blanchard use, they, they all point the same direction. That's why I asked the question, what is it President Biden is trying to solve? So one problem one might be worried about is scarring in the economy, in the labor market, in the small mid-sized business sector that might require a bolder spending action. I think both of those economists would view that it is time to hand the baton from monetary policy to fiscal policy, that excessive use of monetary policy risks, uh, if not price inflation, concerns about financial stability. Is price inflation around the corner if we do this? I'm not sure that would be my first concern. My first concern would be financial stability, that too much money is sloshing around in financial markets. You're already seeing that sign of of froth, whether it's newsworthy things like GameStop or just very low levels of, of risk spreads. That, that would really be uh, my concern. So I think it is too large. I think it's not well targeted, but I'm not sure it's the crisis that Summers and Blanchard suggest. I think it's, if nothing else, an incredibly missed opportunity to preserve firepower for other things the administration may want to do or other political leaders uh, may want to do. But in a class setting, what's interesting is it does give you a chance to highlight determinants of an output gap, to talk about scarring in the labor market, and to talk about determinants uh, of inflation and inflationary expectations. So I guess I'm grateful to them in that regard. 
Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting because I'm struggling myself a little bit with understanding what the current thinking is on um, inflation and the sources of inflation and policy towards inflation, because in a sense, you can put the Summers and Blanchard critiques in the sort of framework we talk about in the textbook that you know, if you push the economy beyond potential GDP, or if you think about it um, in the terms that we talk about in the second monetary policy chapter, in terms of the Phillips curve and the natural rate of unemployment, that you know there is sometimes it's called the the NIRU, the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. Economists love acronyms, and the idea there is that if you push the unemployment rate below that level, and particularly if you do it for a prolonged time, you get an acceleration in inflation, and potentially inflation can get embedded in people's expectations and contracts, in interest rates. And then you run the risk of being uh, back in the 1970s because you know, there's sort of this fear that has hung over monetary policy really since the 70s, right? We had very high inflation, double digit inflation there in the late 70s. And it was finally brought down by um, Paul Volcker as chair of the Fed by a very contractionary policy that led to the severe recession of 1981-82. And there's a sense in which the Fed has always had that uh, specter of the high inflation of the 70s hanging over its head, uh, not wanting to repeat that, not wanting to let inflation get out of hand again. And if you think even fairly recent actions of the Fed, you go back to say 2015, 2018, when the, the Fed first under Janet Yellen's um, leadership as, as chair and then under Jerome Powell's leadership, they pushed up the target for the federal funds rate several times. And the reason seems to have been what is explicable in our basic textbook terms that otherwise unemployment might become too low for too long and we might get an acceleration of inflation. So all of that is kind of consistent with how we talk about things in the textbook and how instructors may be talking about it. I'm wondering though, has that approach, is it no longer a forefront of people's minds? Because Janet Yellen, of course, is now treasury secretary and she doesn't seem concerned that the size of this stimulus package might push us too far above potential GDP and might uh, set off an inflationary spiral of a 1970s type. Is, is it that we no longer quite believe that framework, that maybe that's no longer the best way to think about things, to think in terms of there being a natural rate of unemployment, you don't wanna go beyond it for too long, or is there something about the bill that is not going to cause the problem that you know, Summers and Blanchard and others think that you know, it's just so much spending we're gonna be setting off an inflationary burst well, I don't think we know is the honest and simple answer. We know that predictions of inflation being right around the corner as a result of stimulus since the great financial crisis have not come to bear. We know that inflationary expectations remain uh, anchored and have remained anchored before the pandemic damage uh, began. So all of that is good. 
My fear would be uh, that the Fed uh, moves too slowly in the future. I, I think the sense in which there's no problem is if you think the Fed immediately adjusts when it needs to adjust, but there are a variety of reasons, some economic uh, disagreements and some perhaps political uh, that may limit that. And, and that I think is a concern. But as I say, I think the bigger concern in the summer's Blanchard framework is more that we may see financial stability risks coming uh, faster than price inflation. So what do you think the financial, what form would they take? Would we see rapidly rising interest rates or bubbles in the stock market? Or what do you think the, the main concerns there are? Well, I think you see elements of both, but in a sequence, we're all, already you're seeing pockets uh, of excessive risk-taking and some issues in, in non-bank finance. And then going forward, if there were to be a snap in interest rates, we've already seen a rise in 10-year uh, treasury yields, that may itself uh, cause problems with asset prices. So I think Summers and Blanchard are, are right to raise this uh, concern. Uh, but I do think that some more fiscal action is still warranted. I think the Biden plan's too big. I don't think it's shaped correctly from an economic perspective, but action is needed. Yeah, you raised the point earlier about, and I think both Blanchard and Summers discussed this as well, that are you preempting with a, a stimulus bill this large, are you preempting other potential spending that, that the Biden administration might want to do. There was an article, you, you may have seen it in the, the Washington Post a couple of days ago, where they were talking about the infrastructure spending plans that the Biden administration might have. And the, the number they talked about there was $3 trillion. Now, of course, you never know, you know what happens after things are proposed to Congress and there's a lot of debate and uh, typically presidents don't get what they want. But if you just took that at face value, that three trillion plus the 1.9 trillion, you'd be at 4.9 trillion. And that is actually about what the federal government was spending on everything in 2019. Everything meaning Social Security, Medicare, defense spending, salaries of FBI agents, everything that the federal government spends. So that would obviously mean you would have to issue an enormous amount of debt. And uh, one of the things I, I was looking at, and I hadn't realized this until I actually looked it up, but the Treasury issues a lot of short-term debt. You know, obviously, we were in a low interest rate environment. And you might think that if you were borrowing and you had your druthers, which of course the Treasury doesn't completely have, right? Because they're guided in part by issuing the debt that the bond dealers tell them people are actually interested in buying. You might want to issue a lot of long-term debt and lock in those low interest rates to protect yourself, the treasury, from the possibility that interest rates rise and then you have to issue debt at much higher interest rates. But something like three quarters of the outstanding treasury debt uh, matures in five years or less. Right, which means, and about 40% of it actually matures within a year. So if you did have a spike in interest rates and the treasury then had to roll over the, that maturing debt and by issuing new bonds, presumably they'd have to issue them at higher interest rates. So potentially you could end up with 
a bigger interest rate expenditures that the treasury would have to do, which by itself would presumably crowd out some other types of, of spending that the federal government might want to do. So you're, you're right, Tony, you, you make two points uh, that are related about crowd out, one with the fiscal package being considered and the other following up on the conversation you and I were just having about interest rates. I think both point in the direction that the administration should be very careful with a large fiscal package in terms of its own future options. And I, I would say it's not just infrastructure spending, but it would limit any ability to do major programs to support training or low wage work that President Biden has talked about in his Build Back Better agenda or environmental policy or whatever you, you have in mind. In fact, I think if the $1.9 trillion bill or something like it does pass, that is the last big bill of the Biden administration. Administrations tend to have very front-loaded ability to do anything, and they will have chewed through it all. So I think part of what uh, Larry Summers in particular, I think, was warning the administration is, is this really how you want to uh, spend your political capital? Yeah, that's a very, very interesting point. Maybe getting back to the the point about how economists now think about what when you have to worry about inflation and uh, as you point out, really all the, going all the way back to the recovery from the two thousand seven two thousand nine recession, there have been people who have been expecting inflation to come roaring back, and of course it hasn't, and that's led to some debate about measuring potential output. And some people have noted that if you look at the Congressional Budget Office's forecasts, which are the ones that are probably most widely used, they have tended to be too low. In other words, looking back on it, in fact, they, they revise over time their estimates of potential output in hindsight to say that you know, what, what they now think the level of potential GDP was in say 2017 is greater than what they thought it was in 2017. And so some people wonder whether in fact, those interest rate increases that the Fed put through 2015 to 2018 may have been mistaken at the time, that perhaps potential GDP was higher than the Fed thought at the time and that the natural rate of unemployment or the NIRU was lower than was thought at the time. And as we talk about in the textbook, there were a lot of really nice things that were happening there in late 2019 and early 2020, as the unemployment rate got to very low levels. And we talk about the fact that a lot of people were being drawn into the labor force who'd been on the sidelines, some of them for years. You were talking about labor scarring, that we talk about how people with, say, criminal histories or other flaws in their, their, their employment history got pulled into the, the labor force because companies were desperate for workers, that the uh, number of, of people who were applying for vacancies was low and companies were willing to take on training that they otherwise might not have felt it was cost effective for them to do. And they were willing to take a chance on people as workers that they might not otherwise have taken a chance on. And in fact, it was right at the beginning of 2020 that we finally got the employment population ratio 
for prime age workers, people who are 25 years old to 54, back up to 80%. And as you know, some people think that the employment population ratio might be a better way of looking at unemployment than uh, or, or the employment capacity of the economy than the unemployment rate, because of course the unemployment rate is self-reported and people can drop out of the labor force and then don't get counted as unemployed, even though they might take a job in a, in a high pressure economy. So I'm just wondering whether that experience, in other words, where we pushed the economy in 2019 and 2020 until the pandemic arrived to, to levels of much lower unemployment rates, uh, higher uh, employment population ratios and so on, if that has changed people's thinking in the sense that you have less to worry about in inflation, because in terms, once again, of the textbook, potential GDP is just larger than we thought it was, and the natural rate of unemployment is lower than we thought it was. So that if you took that view, then maybe you would be more optimistic about the effects of this stimulus package, because you wouldn't you would think that, well, there's actually more slack in the economy right now than we might think if we, if we took sort of an older approach. Well, I think that is a lesson that some economists and policymakers are taking here based on exactly the experience that you suggest. What we don't know in that period, of course, is how much of the downward pressure on inflation was from some slow moving, but not permanent, factors uh, having to do with uh, changes uh, in the structure of the Chinese economy and a variety of movements in globalization and technological change that are effectively price level changes, but occurring over a period of time. And so they look like they're keeping a lid on inflation. We don't really know that. I think that is a gamble probably worth taking. Uh, my concern again over the use of this particular fiscal package to do it is that it's, it's so poorly targeted and runs the risk of uh, eliminating the fiscal space the country has. Blanchard raised another point that uh, he's not the only one to, to make this point, but I thought it was interesting and maybe, um, maybe you can comment on this. And that is drawing an analogy between the situation right at the end of World War II. Because of course, during World War II, um, there was, uh, there was no automobile production, uh, you, you know, furniture, appliances, and so on weren't being produced. But the economy was at beyond potential GDP. So just about everybody was employed. Some people, of course, in, in the armed forces, but also in, in manufacturing and, and every other field. But they had, so they were earning, they were earning good incomes, but they couldn't spend it. Right? So there was a big increase in savings. And then um, famously, a lot of economists thought that after the war was over, we might slip back into another depression, and we didn't. And one uh, reason why was that there was this tremendous savings and people had a huge pent up demand to buy cars and dining room tables and everything else. So Blanchard makes the analogy and says, we're kind of in that situation now that you know, people have not been able to take vacations. They've not been able to do a lot of things because businesses are closed or they're fearful of catching the virus. But because of the earlier 
the CARES package and then the, um, the bill that passed at the end of 2020, they've got a lot of savings. So he was raising the point that even without as large a stimulus package as we're getting, once things become more normal and restaurants are reopened and people can uh, get on a plane and go where they want without being quarantined for two weeks or running the risk of, uh, uh, of catching the virus, that we'll see something like happened after 1945. In other words, a big wave of consumer spending as people draw down those savings balances that um, they've accumulated. What do you think about that? Well, I think the sign is clearly right on that argument. I think the magnitude is going to be much different than after World War II, where we also had some changes in credit markets, a GI bill, lots of things that were changing the structure of the economy and the ability to buy things. Let's also remember that much of consumption today is in services. And while my wife thinks I eat too much, I can't make up <laughs> for all the lost restaurant dinners during the pandemic. Uh, I tend to try. I could try, but I, I think we have to be a little careful with the argument and I can only buy so many goods. So, but, but yes, the direction's clearly right. Okay, Glenn, I think we've resolved most of the outstanding economic <laughs> policy issues. Uh, so let me just give a reminder to listeners who may be accessing this podcast through our blog that it's also available on iTunes where you can subscribe, make us part of your podcast feed. And please keep checking our blog, hubbardobrieneconomics.com, where we post new content periodically. You can subscribe to the blog and you'll receive email alerts about new posts. And if you have an issue or concern you'd like us to discuss, we'd like to hear from you. You can send us an email at hubbardobrieneconomics at gmail.com. Thanks again to everyone for joining us for this conversation. We look forward to connecting with you again on a future Hubbard and O'Brien Economics podcast. 